Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. We're on third day of doing Robert Heinlein's The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. And why don't we turn to page 194 to start off with, because that's a really good thing. This, this third day on this novel is really giving us a chance to get further into it. This is in chapter 14. Okay, let me read this section, and then let's talk about it. This is a, where uh, Wyo was there, the, the female, the beautiful woman, as well as uh, Manuel and the professor. And they were having breakfast. And they were watching Adam Selene. Now, who is Adam Selene? The computer mic. That's right. That's the computer version of uh, this secretive... And, and who, who was Adam Selene as a character? It was the computer mic that created the character, but who was he? What was, what was the character created to be? The leader of the revolution. Yeah, that's right. The leader of the revolution. Which is great, because once you have a computer character doing this, you can't get arrested. Okay, he was... Gentle, while we had breakfast, Adam Selene addressed Free Luna on their like version of television. He was gentle, strong, warm, and persuasive. Citizens of Free Luna, friends, comrades, to those of you who do not know me, let me introduce myself. I am Adam Selene, chairman of the Emergency Committee of Comrades for Free Luna, now of Free Luna. We are free at last. The so-called authority, which has long usurped power in this our home, has been overthrown. I find myself temporary head of such government as we have, the Emergency Committee. Shortly, as quickly as can be arranged, you will opt your own government. Adam smiled and made a gesture inviting help. In the meantime, with your help, I shall do my best. We will make mistakes, be tolerant. Comrades, if you have not revealed yourselves to friends and neighbors, it is time you did so. Citizens, requests may reach you through your comrade neighbors. I hope you will comply willingly. It will speed the day when I can bow out and life can get back to normal. A new normal, free of the authority, free of guards, free of troops stationed on us, free of passports and searches and arbitrary arrests. There has to be a transition. To all of you, please go back to work. Resume normal lives. To those who worked for the authority, the need is the same. Go back to work. Wages will go on. Your jobs stay the same. Until we can decide what is needed, what happily no longer is needed now that we are free, and what must be kept but modified. You new citizens, transportees, sweating out sentences pronounced on you earthside, you are free. Your sentences are finished. But in the meantime, I hope that you will go on working. You are not required to. The days of coercion are gone, but you are urged to. You are, of course, free to leave the complex, free to go anywhere. And capsule service to and from the complex will resume at once. But before you use your new freedom to rush into town, let me remind you, there is no such thing as a free lunch. You are better off for the time being where you are. The food may not be fancy, but will continue hot and on time. To take on temporarily those necessary functions of the defunct authority, I have asked the general manager of Lu Noho Company to serve. This 
company will provide temporary supervision and will start analyzing how to do away with the tyrannical parts of the authority and how to transfer the useful parts to private hands. So please help them. Okay. Uh, and then it goes over. Let me just read the last paragraph of his speech. Adam added one more request. Don't try to see me, comrades, and phone me only if you must. All others, write if you can. All right. Uh, basically, he's just continuing the, the idea of coming up with a reason why people shouldn't be able to, expecting to see him. All right. When I read that, I, I, was, I was struck by it, the contrast between this passage and the way we handled things in in uh, in the invasions of uh, Iraq say what do you see any anything any contrast any thoughts about do you have any thoughts about Adam's way of doing something Otto, you have to speak louder, please. He's appealing to the people. Like yes, he's, a, he's appealing. Them, which is something that the U.S. didn't do. I'm sorry? He's trying to connect with the people, which is something the U.S. didn't do in Iraq. Yeah, he's trying to connect with people, and it's true the U.S. did not do that in Iraq. What else? He's, uh, he's invited, I mean, he's, he's telling the people that they don't want to be in power. Not the people that the Adam and the revolutionaries don't want to be in power, but people to pick their own government. So he's, I mean, he's he's like putting to rest fears that they would that they're like a, an invading force or a or a, ta- or a conquest. They're basically saying, you know, we freed you and now we're going to let you do your own thing. Just mm-hmm. give us some time to make sure that you don't fall apart and we let you loose. <coughs> yeah. What? Well. All right. And what else do you see? What about comparing it to what to what happens with what happens often when there is a revolution, especially a really messy one? Whoever wins the fight takes the country. Well, that's true. Whatever wins the fight, but <coughs> um, really, well, look at look what happens not only in, in revolutions but also invasions. Whenever you have a shift of government. Regime change in Iraq. What's what's it like there? Chaos. It's chaos. It's a mess. It's terrible. It's the destruction of everything. And sometimes when you get revolutions, like uh, the revolution that took over Cuba, that was really quite a messy thing when the when Castro took over. And the revolution in China, the Soviet revolution when they became a communist state and they threw out the czar. Those were pretty messy revolutions. Those were really messy revolutions. And it took years to pick up the pieces just to get some semblance of order. Now look at our invasion into Iraq. It's chaos now. It's total dismay, total destruction. I mean, it's just the thing is, the thing is falling apart. Well, when I read this piece, I said, you know, Robert Heinlein is actually giving us a very useful approach to regime change if you want to call it regime change he's actually doing exactly opposite of what we did when we went into Iraq when we went into Iraq we basically dispersed the army 
we disbanded the Iraqi military. We went after the, basically we, we, we disallowed all people who had ever worked for or been a member of the Ba'athist Party, even if they just joined the Ba'athist Party just to get a job and they weren't high-level people or anything. We forbade them from working. <coughs> and when you think about it, the Ba'athist regime is, well, that we've since changed that. The Ba'athist regime was uh, certainly the party that was responsible for the totalitarian rule, but it was just the, before the invasion. Uh, but Saddam Hussein, really, it was just the top people that were the the most crucial in terms of organizing what the Ba'athist party would do. Now the U.S. has changed and tried to actually recruit people that are in the, that were in the Ba'athist party and try to put them back into positions of power, but by that time it was too late. And the government not only was disbanded, but the military was disbanded. And when the military was disbanded, you had 400,000 plus people with guns told to take off their uniforms, keep the guns, and to disperse, which of course led to the insurgency. And I read this, and I said, well, you know, Robert Heinlein's prescription, his recipe for a change of government, involves a level of wisdom that we seem to have lacked in our own invasion into Iraq. It was not to disband things, not to send things away, but to keep everyone working. The advice from the very get-go, from the very first day, his very first address was, don't leave your jobs. You're no longer under an authoritarian rule, which is what the invasion of Iraq would have done. It would have thrown out Saddam Hussein. You're no longer under authoritarian <coughs> rule. But at the same time, you should keep working. Stay at your jobs. The military should stay there. No one should run away. You will all still get paid. You will all still get your, you know, your food and things like that. Exactly the opposite of what went on. And I read that and I said, well, gosh, you know, had Robert Heinlein been directing the war in Iraq, would, is, this what, is this what he would have prescribed? Or at least has his character, Adam Selene, is this what he would have prescribed? It's a very interesting thing. Often we look at science fiction and get commentaries on our own society. But in this case, we've got a prescriptive situation where perhaps what he's prescribing is actually something we should try something new a new thing, a new idea. And that is, in fact, one of the great things about science fiction. You get new ideas. And this, in fact, is a very interesting idea that we should perhaps take from science fiction. And when there is military intervention, it's not a matter of destroying, but rather keeping everybody in place and then subtly rearranging things afterwards. Anyway, I just thought about that. That was a very interesting piece. Let's, let's turn over to page 208. And this is chapter 15 of The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Okay. Now we're talking about a conversation that is going on when people are, are, are talking about uh, organizing their government. And so let's read that. Then somebody stood up and said, of course, that long list didn't belong in the Declaration. Now, 
this was a list of things that, <coughs> that someone was trying to include in their Declaration of Independence. But, should, but shouldn't we have general principles? Maybe a statement that lunar free state guaranteed freedom, equality, and security to all. Nothing elaborate, just those fundamental principles that everybody knew was proper purpose of government. Well, true enough, and let's pass it. But must read freedom, equality, peace, and security. Right, comrade. Well, they wrangled, wrangled over whether freedom included free air, or was that part of security? Why not be on the safe side and list free air by name? Move to amend to make it free air and water because you didn't have freedom or security unless you had both air and water. Air, water, and food. Well, air, water, food, and cubic. Well, okay, air, water, food, cubic, and heat. No, make heat read power and you had it all covered. Everything. Oh, cover, have you lost your mind? That's far from everything and what you've left out is an affront to all womankind. Step aside at and say that. Let me finish. We've got to tell them right. Uh, tell them right from deal that we will permit to no more ships to land unless they carry at least as many men, women as men. At least I said, and I for one won't chop chop it unless it sets immigration issues straight. Well, the professor never lost a dimple. Brian began to see why professor had slept all day and was not wearing weights. Me, I was tired, having spent all day in a pea suit out beyond the catapult head cutting in last of the relocated ballistic radars and everybody was tired. My midnight crowd began to thin, convinced that nothing would be accomplished that night and bored in my bored by any yammer, not their own. Okay, and then this last paragraph. Was later than midnight when someone asked why this declaration was dated fourth when today was the second. Prop said mildly that it was July 3rd now, and it seemed unlikely that our declaration could be announced earlier than the 4th, and that July 4th carried historical, historical symbolism uh, that might help. But what do you think? What can we gain from this passage about politics, about politics in general? What can we gain from this passage? People want specific rights. People want specific rights, yes. What else? Remember, this is in a meeting where they're trying to, their first meeting, trying to figure out how to organize their government, how to, to, how to declare things with their independence, and what statements to put down, and... And with an open decision process like that, you'll never get, like, you'll never get consensus. Well, it was an open meeting, and you're right, it was very difficult to get consensus. What does it tell you about the general nature of politics, though? Remember, we're talking about things that are happening in the world today. We can again relate it to Iraq. What is Iraq doing? <coughs> That's related to this passage. Figure out their own government. And what problems are they having with the government right now? What's that? They don't like it. Well, okay, they don't like it. Well, what else? What's some practical things that are going on? What are some of the controversies <coughs> that are going on that you read about in the newspapers in Iraq that are related to this paragraph or this passage? Well, 
aren't they having arguments about like basic social services? I mean, isn't that part of it that they're having trouble figuring out, ju- like literally, who's going to deal with water and stuff like that? Uh-huh. What's the what's the general orientation of these debates? What are what are, the, what are these debates? What's the structure? If you were trying to explain it to somebody else, what would be the the structure, the division lines that you see going on with these debates? I don't know. I honestly haven't followed that enough. I mean, also the fact that not every group is feels like they're representing. Which groups are there? The Shiites, the Sunnis. And? Kurds. Shiites, Sunnis, and the Kurds. And right now they're wrangling terribly over, first of all, who should be prime minister. The Anyone know which groups don't like the current prime minister? Sunnis. Hmm? The Sunnis. The Sunnis and the Kurds don't like the current prime minister. I and take it he's a Shia. Pardon me. I take it he's a Shia. Yeah, the Shiites like the current the current prime minister. Oh. Uh, now, but there, there is one issue. What is the real complaint against the prime minister that they're? Why are the, both the Kurds and the Sunnis upset with the prime minister? They don't mind a Shiite prime minister. They just upset with this prime minister. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Adel, you had to speak louder. He's in the, no, that's the old one. One of the, like the first one, there was, there was an American company. Yeah, he was put there by the Americans and they had yeah, a problem with that. But not this one. Um, well, they elected him. This one, though, is different. Well, I, I know, but why, why did they, they elected him, didn't they? Yeah, yeah they don't like him. They, they agreed with him, they agreed to have him in the beginning, but they don't like him now. And the Kurds and the Sunnis want to get rid of him. Well, that's just... That's a great way of... That's a great way of running your democracy. No, but there's a, there's a reason. Uh, but the prime ministers can come and go. What did he do? He's not doing enough to get rid of to establish Iraq's independence. I'm sorry, you had to speak loud. He's not doing enough to establish independence. Or he's fair in the Shiites and everything. I'm sorry? Is he favoring the Shiites and whatever? <laughs> in terms of... No, actually, the complaints that are being made against the current prime minister is complaints of incompetence. And it's a, it's a strict it's a strict ordinary thing that you'd find in any government. And the, and the incompetence that they're being raised, that the competence issues that are being raised are with regard to security that the security is constantly degenerating and that particular prime minister just doesn't seem to be able to put the act together to create any level of security. Basically, you have militias, local militias that are all dressed up in Iraqi police and military uniforms. So the citizens can't tell the difference between a local militia that's about to rob and rape and pillage and uh, a real Iraqi force, that, you know, police force or military force that's out there to protect you. So they look all the same. And recently on Iraqi television, there have been warnings that people should not follow the instructions of uniformed Iraqi police or military unless they are also accompanied by American personnel, American troops, So that because they simply can't tell. And so the Kurds and the Sunnis are complaining that the current prime minister is just not been competent in sorting all of that out. Well, they elected him. I mean, a lot of people get elected sometimes right, and are we all, actually not chosen, not necessarily elected. Yes. Wait a second. Wait a second. When, when I mean, we've tried to impeach presidents before. Not everybody's always happy with who they elect. Well, we yeah. try to impeach Bush if we can. But the thing is, 
The thing is that we have a stable government. Like, we didn't impeach anyone. When was the first impeachment in the United States? I mean, didn't they? Yeah, but you only impeach if, like, a, um, like they could bring shame on for a word on the, like, government. If it's just you dissatisfied with the job he's doing, how many people are dissatisfied with George Bush? They're not talking about impeaching him. They're not talking about uh, kicking him out again. You and you also a lot of people dissatisfied with George Bush right now. Well, you also have to take into account that it's a new government. Like, what kind of standard are you going to set if the first elected prime minister you impeach because... Because you just don't like him. But you'd think someone would tell the guy that all he's got to do is get his troops that are legitimate Iraqi forces new uniforms. So that they're not wearing the old Iraqi army uniforms, get them new uniforms, and then tell people, unless they're wearing the new uniforms, don't listen to them. Yeah, but you have to understand, it was the government that gave them those uniforms in the first place. So the government government is not... is not... is currently not... is, is not treating those militias as really enemy combatants, the government is actually still supporting them. So on one side, the government's supporting them, and other parts of the government are saying, hey, these are people that... Maybe the guy ought to be impeached. Um, well, that's that's <laughs> the issue that's going on. That's the issue that's being related. So how long is his term? Well, that's also being debated, how long someone should actually be in there. You see, a prime minister doesn't necessarily have a term of office. Oh, he's not like a president. A president. He's actually a prime minister. No, you see, a president gets elected for a fixed term of office, and come hell or high water, the president is there. But with a prime minister, the prime minister of a... Well, typically, in the Iraqi situation is complicated, but typically, prime ministers are the lead person of the party that has the most votes. And that person then forms a government, and you don't actually vote for a prime minister. People vote for the party, and the party has a party list with the top dog on the very very top going all the way down, very much like Israel. And so with that party list, you uh, get representation into the parliament, and whoever top of the largest vote-winning party becomes then the prime minister. That's typically what happens. And then if the government, which is the rest of the parliament, has a vote of no confidence, then the whole government falls apart. The prime minister is no longer the prime minister, and the new elections are held. And then, you know, then 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 the then the a different party may may win, and everything may change. Is that so, being contemplated in Iraq? No. What's happening in Iraq the, is that the Shiites have the dominant role politically in the parliament, and the Kurds and the Sunnis are upset with the current prime minister for not guaranteeing security or not doing sufficiently is good good enough job on the level of security. Is it legitimate in a government like that to change the top person on the list? That's what they're working out. That's exactly what they're working out, how to do that. So far, the Shiites have been resisting. They have been resisting, and they want to keep that person in. So, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it's not even clear if the situation is one of majority. The, The situation really is one of three different groups fighting like hell. Actually, it's more than three groups, because the Shiites themselves are broken up into pieces. And some people would rather have someone who's loyal to their particular group rather than someone who's competent with regard to security, even, ha- you know, 
evenly distributed. Okay, well, what when we go back to this this passage in Heinlein's book, one of the things that it, it strikes to me is how people, when they first start a democracy and they've not had a democracy before, they have to work out literally everything. That the key is the reason the Iraqis are having so much trouble is that they've never had a democracy before. We look at our democracy and it's been operating since the 1700s. So you're dealing with a few hundred years of practice in making our democracy work and everyone's really working on automatic pilot. People don't have to rethink the basic uh, democratic infrastructure anymore. They don't have to rethink the idea, should we have a house? Should we have a senate? How should people be voting? Should we have a president? Should we have a parliament? Should we have proportional representation? Should we have winner-take-all districts? They don't have to rethink all that. It's all on automatic pilot. But when a country first starts up and establishes a new form of government, especially a democratic form of government, where you actually have to work out details of government, it is typically a messy situation where people have to think through things for the very first time. And that's what Heinlein's getting at. Whether you should include in the basic rights of people whether they should have air, water, and food. Well, what also about cubic, which is how much cubic space? What about heat? Is heat a basic right? Well, if you live on the moon, if you don't have heat, you die. So does that become a basic right? And what about power? Well, if you don't have power, you don't have heat, so maybe we should put in power. You get the idea. Literally everything has to be worked out. Every little detail of what needs to be guaranteed, what doesn't need to be guaranteed. Well, the thing is, it's, it's, a, completely <coughs> different, um, it's a completely different paradigm than the U.S. because like on the moon, like all of those things are controlled, I guess. I mean, the U.S., like, air, no one's going to charge you for it. Water flows in rivers. Food grows anywhere you can put down some seeds. Yeah, those are considered free public goods. Right. And so, I mean, wasn't there wasn't there some political theorist who said that, you know, anything you could take from the public domain was yours as long as you put work into it? When you put work into it, it became yours? It often turned out to be an unspoken thought about things like that, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it was just... But it's vastly abused. You see... Now, I think it was Locke. Pardon me? I think it was Locke who said that... Yeah, but the basic coming. idea, though, is now vastly abused, especially with regard to the destruction of the environment. Because basically people say, well, with regard to smoke, for example, power plants produce power and sell it. Now, one of their waste products is huge tonnage of smoke, particulate matter that goes up the tubes. Well, they're response is, let us dump it into the air and let it float down. Now, once it gets dumped into the air, it then because becomes pollution. <coughs> it produces things like acid rain, which destroys the forest, so it's killing other things. It produces a huge quantity of health-related problems where people get sick, have emphysema, asthma attacks, they have lung cancers, they have all types of problems associated with this air pollution. And insurance companies have raised the idea of wanting to sue power companies because the insurance companies then have to pay for the rehabilitation, repair of these physical bodies when in fact they were, they were damaged by the power company. So why should the insurance company have to pay for this? So the power companies have sometimes been targets of insurance companies that have thought about suing them. 
So you see, the power companies look at it in the sense of, well, the air is a public good. But the reality is it's not a, it's not a, a free public good. You actually... What, they're actually, what the power companies are actually doing is stealing from the public good. The public good is clean air. And what the power company is doing is, rather than pay for putting scrubbers in, which cost a hefty chunk per smokestack, <coughs> they're called electrostatic precipitators. Rather than put them in, that what it does is the smoke, when it goes up the tubes, up the chimneys, it's given an electric charge. And it adheres like an ionic breeze to the That's exactly blades. right. That's exactly right. It's given an electric charge, like an ionic breeze, and then it goes through uh, collect, uh, electrostatic collectors, like magnets, and it pulls the particles off to the sides. And then you pack it up and you bury it someplace. It's a solid piece of chunk. So rather than having it go up as pieces out the smoke out the smokestacks, you actually have it and you fill up a truck with it and bury it in the ground. Well, that costs money. And so rather than spend the money to have the electrostatic precipitators, otherwise known as scrubbers, they say, well, let's just steal it from the public, which is stealing the public good. So this idea of the public good often has to be negotiated. It was originally thought that the air was a public good and it could best be used. The water, the same thing, pollution into the water, pumping things into the water. It's a way to make people's products cheaper. They don't have to pay for the disposal of things. They don't have to pay for garbage collection in that sense. Well, all these things have to be worked out. What is a public good, what is not a public good? And sometimes, as in, as in the United States, it takes centuries to work these things out. We're still working out the issues of the, of the public good with regard to clean air. Is clean air absolutely a right? Should insurance companies have to pay for the rehabilitation of someone's body when it was destroyed by a power company? These are issues which we have to work out. Anyway... So we're taking literally hundreds of years to work these things out, and, and in a brand new democracy, you have to cover as many of those bases as you can right up front. And this is what's going on. People don't have any experience, so they ask all sorts of questions. How was it done? I remember when I was uh, sent by the State Department to Uganda to talk about elections. Let me see, this was back in the, I believe, late 80s or early 90s. And I was having, uh, I believe it was um, either the ambassador's home or uh, someone related in the embassy's home, a dinner with a bunch of editors from from Ugandan papers. And then we met and then we made an arrangement for the next day for me to have an interview, a particular interview with one of them. And I had this interview the next day at, at uh, one of the government, U.S. government buildings. And it went on with sort of standard questions. And then when I finished the interview, I got into the embassy car and was driven back to the hotel. But on the way to the hotel, we were flagged down by someone in a car. And my driver, the embassy driver, said, it looks like it's the reporter you just had an interview with. So we pulled over, and it was actually in front of a police station, which was sort of weird. The reporter came out of the car and said, I need to have an interview with you. I said, I just gave you an interview. Yeah, I said, he said, but that was on, that was in government property. I really, really, I need a special interview with you. I need to ask you some other questions. And I said, well, I'm going to have dinner with the ambassador. I really need to get back to my hotel and rest. And he said, it won't take more than a few minutes. 
I said, but where can we have this interview? And he said, right here, right in the car. And I looked at my driver and, he, and I said, what do you think? And the driver said, it's okay, I think we can still make it. I said, all right, we'll have your interview in the car. And then he sat down with me, this editor from the Uganda newspaper, and said, these are the other questions I wanted to ask you. These are the really important questions. We are trying to set up our democracy here in Uganda, and we want to know how it's done. How do you actually vote? I said, well, you just simply, you know, you have ballots. He said, okay, let's talk about the ballots. We've heard that there's ways to have ballots stolen and corruption to go on. For example, how do we protect against disappearing ink? I said, disappearing ink? He said, yes. Well, you know, you mark something and then it, it goes away, disappearing ink. Don't they have disappearing ink? And I said, really, I don't think you have to worry about disappearing ink. Normally when people mark things on the ballots, it would be with regular pens and pencils that you'll have commonly around you that you buy in the store. You'll know that it's normal stuff. That's <coughs> normally not a problem with electoral theft. He said, okay, well, what about the ballots themselves? Once you have the ballots, how do you actually know that they're being counted? And I said, well, that's actually a good question. You want to actually be sure that the ballot boxes are not stuffed prior. Now in Japan what they do is they actually have a long procession where all the ballot boxes are opened and shown to a procession of judges who actually sees that they're all emptied before they're locked, closed. But then there's another thing that's been done in Ghana not too long ago, which is that Jerry Rawlings, I believe, was given by Norway. He's the former Jerry Rawlings was the former head of, uh, president of Ghana and he was given ballot boxes that are transparent from Norway so people could actually see he he ran for two fair and free elections, Jerry Rawlings did won both of them, the first one the opposition party didn't believe he won so that they boycotted participation in the government and that's when the ballot boxes were made of wood and then he, he got these transparent ballot boxes and the second time he ran and won re-election he was able to get the participation of the opposition party and the government afterwards because they truly believed he won because they saw there were transparent ballot boxes and they saw the boxes weren't stuffed. So I suggested to the editor that he should think about getting the transparent ballot boxes. And he said, that's great. What phone number do I need to call? <laughs> I said, I don't know that, but uh, I think that information can be found out. And then I said, and he said, what about observers? I said, well, it's good to have observers. International observers are good. Uh, they often do that at the Carter Center at Emory University, where I'm associated with. They have the Carter Center, and the Carter Center often sends out international observers to monitor elections. He said, that's what we need to know. What's the phone number, and who do I talk with so we can find out how to get these international observers? You see, and the very basic questions, just the nuts and bolts, disappearing ink, plastic ballot boxes that you can see through, the phone numbers of people to get the ballot boxes, the phone numbers of people to get the international observers. Nothing was worked out. So when we go to vote, we just assume that we're going to show up at our polling booth, there'll be voting machines there, people will be there operating those voting machines, and then afterwards the votes will be tallied. He also said about the tallying, about the counting. I said, yes, uh, well, you just make sure that there are representatives from all the parties there and that when they open the boxes, they, they um, count the ballots and everyone sees. And he says, yes, but you see, 
the voting is done in one room, but the counting is done in another. So you have to walk down a hall holding the ballot boxes. Now, when you're walking down the hall holding the ballot boxes, you have to walk single file because the hall is narrow. Well, what's to stop someone from, as you're walking single file and everyone's behind and they can't see the ballot box, from passing an opening door and quickly throwing the box filled with correct ballots in the room or having it taken by someone in a room while that room while that person gives another box that's already filled with stuffed ballots. And I said, well, that's, that does seem to be an issue. Well, why don't you have at least two people or three people behind the ballot box exactly so you can at least keep it in the corner of your eye? <laughs> you get the idea? Really basic stuff. And that's what Robert Heinlein is talking about. He's talking about the nature of democracy when it starts off. Nothing can be assumed. You can't assume anything. Everything has to be worked out from the very scratch. That's what this is all about. Anyway, it was a very perceptive aspect of Heinlein's writing. Let's, let's, let's go over to page 257. Now, this is a very interesting passage, and this is in chapter 18. 257. Now they're talking about what to do with the relationship between the moon and the earth. Remember, the moon was being used as a farm to (coughs) produce grain. And then the grain was shipped to the moon. It was easy to ship grain to the... I mean, I'm sorry, the grain was shipped to the earth. And it was easy to do that because it was downhill, meaning the gravity of the moon was very light and they could use a catapult, an electromagnetic catapult, to throw the shipments out of moon orbit and they would be caught by the Earth's gravity and brought to Earth. But there's only a limited amount of water, of course, on the moon, so when every shipment of grain went from the moon to the Earth, it was taking water with it inside the kernels. And when the water of the moon was exhausted, then everybody on the moon would die because they wouldn't have their bone structure would be weaker, wouldn't be able to survive on Earth, and so on. Okay, so now they're talking about well, what happens if we stop feeding? If the moon stops feeding Earth, and this is what they said. Perhaps uh, this is Manuel talking. Perhaps he's talking to the professor. Suppose these talks fail and grain shipments stop. What happens? And then the professor says, well, people back home will be vexed with us. And many here on Terra would die. Have you read Malthus? Don't think so, said Manuel. And the professor continues, well, many would die. Then a new stability would be reached with somewhat more people, more efficient people, and better fed. This planet isn't crowded, it's just mismanaged. And the unkindest thing you can do for a hungry man is to give him food. Give. Read Malthus. It's never safe to laugh at Dr. Malthus. He always has the last laugh. A depressing man, man, and I'm glad he's dead, but don't read him until this is over. Too many facts hamper a diplomat, especially an honest one. What's Malthus? Who knows anything about Thomas Malthus? Nothing? Well, Thomas Malthus 
in the 1700s came up with a theory about population on the planet Earth. And basically he said that humans, like any population of rabbits or any other population, cattle, whatever, humans will grow exponentially until they exhaust their food supply. So that means as time goes on, the more humans there are, the more humans there will be. So you have a situation of positive feedback. More people, more parents, then more babies, and each year more and more and more, and the growth rate continues to rise until you run into something called the carrying capacity. And the carrying capacity is the maximum number of people that any body can su can supply. And you can think of a geographical area like a, a continent, or you can think of it in terms of the entire planet. So you have a geographical area, say of the planet, the entire planet. The planet has a carrying capacity. It can only support, meaning it can only produce so much food for so many people. Then what happens is once you have that population run smack into the carrying capacity, everyone then lives in subsistence, meaning no one really does well. People then are all just getting by, and the general overall health of everyone is rather poor. That's Thomas Malthus. That's why the professor was saying he's a depressing man, and I'm glad he's dead. It was a, it was a depressing way of looking at things. This was also an argument, Thomas Malthus's argument was also used to suggest to people that they perhaps should not worry too much about the poor. There's no real good reason to help the poor because the poor are destined for subsistence living anyway because they just grow, grow, grow. And so that was a depressing sort of interpretation of Malthus. This interpretation was later modified Malthus's ideas were later modified by one of his contemporaries, David Ricardo. And Ricardo said, no, really what will happen is the food supply will start to diminish, but basically as the population grows, people will go to less optimal places to grow food. So instead of growing it on the flat plains, they'll go out to the hillsides and start growing it on the hillsides. And then when those are all filled up, when more people show up, they'll try growing it on the mountaintops. Now the hillsides are worse than the flat plains because they're, they're sloped. And so once you cut down the trees and plant grains, you have erosion and the hillsides are very difficult. You have to terrace them. It's difficult to actually plant on the hillsides. Just need to go the Dyson's Fed. Just need to go the Dyson's Fed. I'm sorry, say it a little louder. You just need to build a Dyson Sphere. That will solve all the problems. You have to build a, a what? Have you heard about a Dyson Sphere? A Dyson Sphere. Oh, yeah. Well, that would be that would be even more complicated. Yeah. Does everyone know what a Dyson Sphere is? No. Go ahead. A Dyson Sphere is like a theoretical, uh, like artificial, it's a big sphere, basically, that has the sun on the other side and is built around it. Like it's built at a certain distance out from the sun so they grow crops across its entire surface continuously. There's no night, it's in entirely controlled 
like system. So rain when you want. It's got like many, many hundreds of times the surface of earth to just you can like live there, grow crops there, everything can go there. Well, you, what you're talking is an interesting idea. It's actually ultra management. You're managing absolutely every aspect. And what Malthus was basically saying is that you don't really get that in, 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 in nature. What you get is just people growing their population until there's nothing to eat anymore. And, and the, the modification, but that's a really good point, because it really shows the difference between what happens when you just think, let things run by themselves and when you actually manage everything. Now, the difference between Malthus and Ricardo is that Ricardo said, as the population grows, they're going to be moving into less optimal areas, and you're going to have to work harder for every bushel of food or every quantity of food that you actually produce. So for each unit of labor input, you're going to get less back from it, so you're going to have to work more from it. So what you'll actually get down you get is a slowing down of the population. The population isn't going to actually just keep on growing until it hits the carrying capacity. It will actually grow, but then taper off slowly till it gradually approaches the carrying capacity. But the, the end is the same. You still get to the carrying capacity, and then people live in subsistence. Whether you get to it sort of smoothly, slowly, or whether you get to it with a crash, is the big difference between Malthus and Ricardo. So the, the idea that they're saying here is that, well, can anyone take this idea, then I've explained what Malthus is all about, and then relate what this passage is, what's going on with this passage? Especially when professor said many would die, then a new stability would be reached with somewhat more people, more efficient people, and better fed. This planet isn't crowded, it's just mismanaged. And the unkindest thing you can do for a hungry man is to give him food. Give. Read Malthus. It's never safe to laugh at Dr. Malthus. He always has the last laugh. What so is that? that? So this idea of like the strong survive and once the carrying capacity is reached and many people die on Earth, mm-hmm. the ones who do survive can like manage better mm-hmm. in terms of surviving mm-hmm. future generations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I'm saying that's that's very good. The basic idea is that, well, how would you relate this idea to human activity in the past? And even what we're doing with regard to our use of oil in this country. Well, think about it. We have the habit, an addiction to petroleum that's unsustainable. And this addiction to petroleum is forcing us to go out and invade places like Iraq, but also to support regimes, monarchies in Saudi Arabia, to support regimes that are fundamentally undemocratic for the longest time. It's only recently that we started talking to them about shifting over to becoming more democratic, and actually when these regimes do become democratic, they tend to be taken over by Islamic insurgencies. Islamic Islamic uh, fundamentalists, and so it's it's not necessarily <coughs> something that can happen overnight. But what is how does this passage then relate to our behavior, and say the Middle East and oil? 
Okay, substitute the wheat that the moon is supplying for the planet Earth. Substitute oil for that. And then what? What? how would you compare this passage to our situation? That we're like, we're selfish and we really don't care about... Like, Earth doesn't really care about the well-being of the moon. We really don't care about the well-being of Earth. Well, is it that we just don't care? We don't see it as the prime concern. We certainly don't see it as a prime concern. What else? You can make the same parallel argument with regard to history, the, the you know, development of slavery, the exploitation of colonies, all throughout history. Basically, as long as we get what we want, we don't really care who has to pay for it, like, who has to suffer for it. How would you relate it now, then, to Malthus in particular, the discussion of Malthus? That's good, Rachel, but how would you just relate it particularly to the discussion of Malthus? Because um, they're about to say you shouldn't help the poor or the elderly because they're going to die anyways. It's a waste of your resources. Well, actually, it was other people who interpreted Malthus that way. Is that is that okay? But you see, the basic idea that Highland's pushing is really important for us to get. And that is that it is in the nature of humans to not think about change unless a crisis actually comes upon them. And the crisis that they're talking about with regard to Malthus is the crisis of where the food comes from. In the United States, we don't like to think about change, so we'd like to continue with our oil addiction, to continue both manufacturing, buying, and using SUVs, motorhomes, low-mileage vehicles, rather than fundamentally change and start using very high-mileage vehicles. So, the issue is that Malthus introduced the idea that people... <coughs> have a real resistance to logical change and that they can see they don't see the future coming they just run right into it they just smack into it as if they're blind and that's what the professor here is talking about he's saying what the earth is doing is it's relying on an exploitation a relationship <coughs> of exploitation with the moon in order to continue with a planetary society that is fundamentally mismanaged. Meaning, because they, because the Earth has fundamental problems with the way it's organizing itself, it can sustain that fundamental misorganization by exploiting both people and resources from the moon. So if you were to relate that to our situation, we can continue our oil addiction and thus support monarchies and other, you know, unpleasant things going on in the Middle East as long as the oil keep flows, keeps flowing. And that's a trend of human nature. When slavery was going on, well, people were willing to maintain that largely because they didn't want economic change to occur. When colonizing powers colonize someplace, they like to hold on to those things, even though change seems inevitable, eventually 
because there's relationships that are formed and they want to keep going that. People get into habits and those habits are very difficult to change. What Highland's really talking about here is the human need for crisis to have changes. That humans don't just sort of see the logic and put two and two together and say, well, this means we have to change. We wait until the crisis actually hits us. Basically, if you're to interpret Heinlein correctly, then we will exhaust our petroleum supplies almost entirely before we really fundamentally change. We're just going to use up all the petroleum supplies. And we'll keep exploiting whatever resources we need to exploit, <coughs> reasons we need to exploit, to keep that addiction going until we run into the crisis and the petroleum products are simply not there anymore. That's what Heinlein is saying. Whether that's exactly what's going to occur, we don't know. But Heinlein is giving us that critique of ourselves, that critique of human nature. You see, the exploitation of the moon is fundamentally unjust because they do not have water as a renewable resource. They have a fixed amount of water. It's buried in the ground. It has to be dug up. And with that water, they raise grain. The water is then inside the grain, and it's shipped to Earth, which means you're drying out the moon. Those people themselves can't leave the moon because their bone structure is weaker because of the low gravity. So essentially, you're condemning the entire moon to death, which is now a, a very vibrant world in Highland's novel. And the Earth is not going to change, yet all the facts are clear. In fact, a great deal of effort has been made to avoid letting people see those facts. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Crisis. Highland's talking about crisis. Crises of transition, crises of development. Nothing happens easily for humans. Okay, let's shift now. Let's go over to page 276. And this is in chapter 20. Now they're talking about strategy, political strategy for how to defeat the Terrans, how to defeat the Earth, how to actually win. Okay? So they're having a compromise, and Manuel again is talking with the professor, and here it goes on. And here's the professor talking, please, since they can inflict their will on us, our only chance lies in weakening their will. That was why we had to go to Terra, to be decisive, to create many options. The shrewdest of the great generals in China's history once said, that perfection in war lay in so sapping the opponent's will that he surrenders without fighting. In that maxim lies both our ultimate purpose and our most pressing danger. Suppose, as seemed possible that first day, we had been offered an inviting compromise, a governor in place of a warden, possibly from our own number local autonomy, a delegate in the Grand Assembly, a higher price for grain at, at the catapult head, plus a bonus of, for increased shipments, a disavowal of Hobart's policies combined with a, an expression of regret over the rape and the killings with handsome cash settlements to the victim's survivors. Would it have been accepted back home? Well, they didn't offer that, said Manuel. Well, the chairman was ready to offer something like it that first afternoon, and at that time he had his committee in hand. 
he offered us an asking price close enough to permit such a dicker. Assume that we had reached, in substance, what I outlined. Would it have been acceptable at home? Mm, well, maybe. More than a maybe. By the bleak projection made just before we left home, it was the thing to be avoided at all cost. A settlement which would quiet things down, destroy our will to resist without changing any essential in the long, longer-term prediction of disaster. So I switched the subject and squelched the possibility by being difficult about irrelevancies and politely uh, irrelevancy and politely offensive. Manuel, you and I know, and Adam knows, that there must be an end to food shipments. Nothing less will save Luna from disaster. But can you imagine a wheat farmer fighting to end those shipments? What's he talking about now? That relates to our previous discussion. They want to stop giving Earth their wheat. What's that to say? Say it again. They want to stop giving Earth other food because yes, of course, that's what they want to do. But how does it relate now to to the politics that we discussed just before? It's like the resource that they have that Earth wants. It's only like Earth wants so bad that they're willing to like ignore everything else. Yes, they want to that the Earth would ignore everything else, and they would try to get those resources. But what more can we read about? <coughs> human nature and politics. Rachel, you want to say? Um, well, Jason, what do you think? Um, I mean, just from reading that, it's, it's about how there's like a... I mean, the second part of it, at least, is about like having to do with the revolution and not letting it die down. Mm-hmm. And how, like, the worst thing you can do to a revolution is come to a halfway compromise. Mm-hmm. I mean, people are people right then wanted something definitive. And if they come to a halfway compromise, people would have calmed down and been placated, and they never would have gotten to the end of the revolution. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I guess that in that aspect, the point of it was that you can't... Halfway measures will satisfy people, but if you want to get your revolution to reach the end that you have in mind, you can't accept that. Mm-hmm. That's getting close. That's interesting. Um, you know, when I was reading this, that's pretty good, Jason. You know, but, but when I was reading this, you know what I was thinking? Is that whenever an exploitive relationship occurs, there's a positive benefit on both sides of the exploitation. For example when Africa was being uh, exploited with regard to slavery there was a positive benefit on the side of many people in Africa who were going out and capturing others, people of neighboring tribes and so on, and selling them to the slavers they were getting paid by the slave trade they were being paid by the slave trade so there was a positive relationship on the part of many exploiters in Africa at the time it wasn't just the benefit of just the slavers people who were running the boats and the people who were running the, the, you know, the United States. So, when we talk about any relationship, exploitive relationship, there's people on both sides of it that are prospering. And what Heinlein is talking about here 
is that yes it's true that the earth is prospering by having the wheat shipments sent to it sent to it from the moon but also look at all those farmers that are on the moon they're actually in a relationship that is they're prospering from they're gaining something from that they're selling the wheat they're selling the wheat and so how many of those farmers would voluntarily say okay let me give up my livelihood meaning there's going to be resistance to change on the moon as well as there would be resistance to change on the earth so if you're actually thinking of causing a revolution of having fundamental restructuring fundamental change then you're talking about difficulties not just at home it's not like you have everybody at home agreeing we want a revolution and everybody on the other place on earth is our enemy no you have fundamental change on both sides you have to restructure the economic relationships and everything else on the moon at the same time you're cutting it off from the earth you have to restructure both sides for example in the United States before it was the United States when it was just the colonies and we were trying to establish our independence from Britain there were many people here in the colonies in the 13 colonies that didn't want independence that resisted independence they had a profitable relationship with Britain so you had to overcome them as well as the British themselves the complexity Heinlein again is pointing us at the complexity of revolution the complexity of change now if we're to look at a democratic revolution in Iraq which is something that we're trying to bring about what does that mean? well you have to think of those people who don't want that you may say, well, why doesn't everyone want a democratic revolution in Iraq? It just seems to be common sense. Bring peace, prosperity, set up the economy, go, be great. Well, there are people that are wedded to what they saw as perhaps the benefits that they had before the American invasion and want to bring that back. A lot of the insurgents might be led by people who were with influence in the regime of Saddam Hussein. So those people are going to be saying, well, we're losing something with this change. Maybe other people are gaining something, but we're losing something, and they fight, and they fight. So whenever you have any type of change, you're going to have people in your home territory that are opposed to this change. It's not just the people from abroad you're fighting. It's people from home, too. So you're talking about a revolution needing to transform internally what is uh, you know, the nature of the, you know, the politics in the home country. Now, what did China do to get their revolution, their communist revolution under Mao Zedong? <coughs> Mao Zedong. What did they have to do? What did they do? It was They had that same exact problem. What did they do? I don't know. Very violent revolution. Lots of people, tens of thousands, millions perhaps, died hundreds of thousands at least Uh, many people were shipped off to camps problems were eliminated simply by eliminating the problems by eliminating the people themselves the opposition were just destroyed that's a bloody revolution the Russian revolution, the Soviet revolution that was a very similar type of thing when the communists took over they had people they were fighting, it wasn't just the Tsar was the enemy. They had different groups. They had people who were supporting the Tsar, people who were supporting a different type of government, not a communist government, and then there were people supporting the idea of a communist government. And they had to fight. Well, the the aftermath was very bloody. And then it continued for a long way. And Basically, then 
it doesn't level its revenue requires long-term planning and no distinction between revolutions. That's exactly it. The Heinlein had talked about that before. What do you get when you get a bloodless revolution? It's a totally different thing. It's a very difficult one. Th- those are the best forms of revolution when you're going to engineer those off. But they're very difficult. They're not easy to get. Okay, look, time is up, but I think what we really did is covered a lot of new material. It really shows that Heinlein is talking about a whole bunch of issues that are relevant to us. Not at all. Obvious, and it's sometimes good to actually go into them. So, next week... We are starting on a great book. This is one of the mind-bending readers. I mean, it's really a, a super interesting <coughs> read. We're reading William Gibson's Neuromancer, and uh, a mind-twister if there ever was one. It's the winner of the Hugo Nebula and the Philip K. Dick Award, so it's a really great novel. So let's have this thoroughly read, and I will also have all of your assignments back to you by Tuesday. And um, we're going to be talking about this on Thursday as well, so I have it almost completed by Tuesday, okay? Great. See you then.